Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissinger. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our guest this week is the associate editor of The Spectator and Quillette, Toby Young. Welcome back to Trigonometry. Thank you. It's good to have you back. You are our second returning guest, as we've just discussed. Okay. Uh, you said okay as if it doesn't matter. I don't care. Well, a bit disappointed not to be the first. <laughs> but you don't know, care. The male ego, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. There we go. So, uh, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, as a returning guest, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, just so people who haven't seen the first interview just get to find out how are you, where you are. Yeah. Well, I've been a journalist for about thirty-five years. Um, I've written a column for The Spectator for the last 20 years or so, um, but I contribute to lots of other magazines and newspapers. Um, I, I write about politics, culture, society. Um, I'm particularly interested in the current climate of Maoist intolerance, which I know you've fallen foul of, Constantine. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, I'm working on a book about that. My initial title was um, Salem 2.0, <laughs> uh, The Return of the Religious Police to the That's Public Square. Yeah. That's a um, good title. But I'm now working on, I'm now, I've, got, I've got a new title, which is Rebels Without a Clue, yeah. um, mm. about you know people who are in the social justice cult. But I, I haven't quite decided exactly what it I should like be that. called yet. Yeah, that's um, good too. So. Yeah. Great. Well, listen, welcome back. Uh, before we get into uh, some of the controversies that we wanted to talk with you about, including stuff that you've personally been involved with, uh, I, I mentioned that you were the associate editor of Quillette, yeah. which is a publication I've written for a number of times and I have a lot of time for and respect. So uh, for anyone who may not be familiar with it, just tell us what do you guys do and what's, what, what that publication is all about. So Quillette is an online magazine which was started by um, a graduate student called Claire Lehman, um, who gave up um, her graduate degree in psychology. Um, and she, she had a couple of kids uh, and then decided to start this online magazine on her kitchen table. Um, and I think, she, I think she started it in uh, 2015. Um, wow. And uh, it didn't, it, it, and, and, and it blew up in 2017, blew up in a good way, yeah. <laughs> um, when, when James Damore, um, the software engineer, was sacked by Google for circulating an internal memo challenging some of the um, ideological orthodoxies within the company, particularly around the underrepresentation of women um, in the company and in tech more generally. Um, when he was fired, one of the um, sticks to beat him with was that he was a, that he'd invoked pseudoscience, um, that all the science he'd referred to in his memo um, regarding why it might be, why there might be kind of perfectly innocent scientific reasons for why there were fewer women working at Google and in tech more generally than men. Um, he was ridiculed for that, told that he was invoking pseudoscience and this was just typical misogyny, masquerading as science. Um, and um, Quillette published, um, a published four pieces by pretty eminent um, psychologists, um, uh, essentially saying, no, he's got the science right. You know, you may disagree with what he said, and there may be other reasons for objecting to what he said, but 
on scientific grounds, what he said is sound. There is a respectable body of literature, and he was actually echoing main, what is effectively mainstream consensus. And uh, among those scientists was Jordan Peterson, Jeffrey Miller was another one. We've interviewed him a couple okay. of months back. He's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it blew up. And uh, I think, the, I think the, 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 well, the, the, the site kind of collapsed because it became so overwhelmed mm. with uh, people wanting to read these pieces. And ever since then, it's, uh, it's, been, it's, uh, it's been a huge success. I mean, it survives um, more or less entirely on um, voluntary contributions from readers via Patreon and other similar sites. Mm. Um, and um, and it, it, it's essentially, it, I think it, it was, it, it's, it's, been, it's, it's quite closely linked to the intellectual dark web, though not necessarily by the people associated with Quillette, um, uh, partly <laughs> because it publishes people like Jeffrey Miller and Jordan Peterson. Um, uh, we recently published um, Stephen Pinker. Stephen Pinker wrote... I think a 12,000 word piece for us, um, which ended up becoming the introduction to the paperback of Enlightenment Now. Mm. Um, I'm in charge of the Quillette podcast. Um, we interviewed Stephen Pinker for the podcast. I interviewed Jordan Peterson for the podcast. Um, and the podcast has, you know, it's been, it's been a success. I, I, I do it jointly with Jonathan Kay, who's based mm. in Toronto. I mean, one of the interesting things about Quillette is it's, uh, it has no offices. It has no real location, even though Claire's based in Australia. So there's an editor in Toronto. Um, there are two in London. And there's one in Sweden. And we had our first Quillette social gathering um, in Toronto earlier this year. And um, it, 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 uh, it was the first time I'd met Claire in person. I mean, we'd communicated via Skype. First time I'd met Jonathan Kay. Um, so it was, uh, it, was, it was actually lots of people there were people who'd been publicly shamed, defenestrated, lost various positions, uh, and often... Um, former members of the liberal left, in some cases, former members of the social justice cult, who for one reason or another have been expelled from the cult and are now apostates. And it was, there was this, it was like, almost like a support group for people <laughs> who found themselves kind of uh, mobbed on Twitter. I am Toby and I'm an outcast. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that. Uh, one of them was this guy called Stephen Elliott, who uh, uh, we, we published this. He, he, he was, there, was a, there, was a, there was something called the Shitty Media Men List, which you may know about, which was circulated in New York in 2017 by an editor at the New Republic. Um, it was initially created as a Google document and it listed very, it was in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal and it listed various male members of the media mm. who'd be supposedly behaved in a kind of inappropriate way uh, along Weinsteinian lines. And um, there were various accusations thrown about and one of the people on this list was a guy called Stephen Elliott and next to his name it had multiple rape allegations and he was a uh, he was he, he was uh, self-employed at the time. He had a job writing for a Hollywood studio on a sitcom. He had a book about to come out. He'd started this successful online literary magazine, which he'd handed on to somebody else. So you know, a guy with a thriving career. This was the first he'd ever been. He'd ever even heard about these allegations. The allegations weren't in any way fleshed out. No names, dates, places. All it said was multiple rape allegations. So he didn't know how to begin to go about defending himself. Um, of course, he lost his job but the Hollywood studio. His book was buried by the publisher. Lots of his close friends started distancing themselves from him. He was dropped by his agent. He became suicidal. And um, he actually went so far as to order a suicide kit on the dark web and got the kit, wrote a suicide note, um, f took some barbiturates, and then placed a sack 
uh, a plastic sack over his head and tightened the rope and uh, was literally seconds away from um, uh, the point of no return when he changed his mind. And, um, and since he changed his mind, he's come out fighting and he's now suing the woman who compiled the shitty media men list. Um, and, uh, you know, Godspeed to him. Mm. Well, uh, speaking of uh, controversial or challenging issues, one of the uh, the things that you've got involved with very recently is this whole Greta Thunberg, the young woman who is uh, the face uh, of the climate change protest movement, the Extinction Rebellion, and so on. Um, and uh, just tell tell us very briefly what actually happened. Well, um, I I wrote a piece in the Spectator um, probably a couple of months ago. Um, uh, after she first um, came to the fore, after she'd given a couple of speeches and her YouTube videos of those speeches were blowing up. And her, it, what, what, she, what she says in her, in her speeches, in her kind of set, in her stump speech, is that um, uh, successive governments across the West have done nothing to try and combat climate change, that they have just been completely negligent. They've buried their heads in the sand and they need to be shamed into doing something. And the people to shame them into doing something are school children and members of the younger generation because it's their future that's at stake. Um, and uh, there's a kind of, there's a sort of uh, moral self-righteousness. It's sort of presented as a moral crusade. Our elders have failed us for failing to do anything about this looming emergency. Uh, and unless something is done, we're all going to die. Um, and I, I mean, I, 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 thought, I, I thought, well, this isn't quite right. Um, there have been a number of efforts to try and tackle climate change, um, uh, some of which have been quite effective. So the British government, for instance, um, has um, tried to reduce carbon emissions and has done so reasonably successfully. Uh, so if you compare the emissions in 2017 to the emissions in 1990, they're 43% lower. Interestingly, Greta challenged that statistic when she uh, addressed the House of Commons um, uh, earlier, well, I think it was last week. Um, uh, but um, it seemed to me that uh, you know she was she was someone putting herself forward in the public arena. Um, she was making a claim, which is part of a a you know by any stretch of the imagination a political platform, a political crusade. I mean, she's linked to an organisation called Climate Justice, and along with the Extinction Rebellion protesters, they think the only way to avoid a catastrophe. Uh, is to end capitalism. Um, so you know, she, she even even though it's not quite, it's not, she, she doesn't she she doesn't often put it in such stark terms, but nonetheless, she is part of an anti-capitalist, in many cases, a movement which uh, which is a sort of um, uh, an offshoot of the social justice movement. It, 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 it's generally it's the it's the same sort of people with the same kind of hard left anti-capitalist agenda. Now, I thought if she's putting herself forward in the public arena, um, and she's making claims which are patently factually inaccurate. It's just not true that Western governments, particularly the British government, have done nothing to try and combat climate change. They've done something. You may not think it's enough. Perhaps it isn't enough, but that's a slightly different point. And it slightly undermines the whole kind of moral force of her argument if, if you acknowledge that actually 
they have tried to do something, it just hasn't been sufficient and they need to do more. Different point, much more nuanced. But she, she's very much, she presents things in a very black and white way. Anyway, I thought it was fair enough to, 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 factual, to correct what I saw as factual errors. I mean, it seemed to me it was just straightforward fake news. And it's not as if she's the only person making these claims. Almost everyone who participated in the Extinction Rebellion protest made exactly the same claim and claimed, claimed to be on this kind of moral crusade in virtue of the fact that they were the only ones willing to confront this crisis, this looming catastrophe. Everyone else, and particularly older people, they didn't have the moral courage that these protesters have. You know, a very unnuanced black and white mm. point of view. Clearly wrong, based on fake news, on misinformation. What she had said, and what she repeatedly does say, I thought was misleading, so I thought it was fair enough to challenge her on it. Um, instead of, and the response, from most people, not from everyone, but the response from most people, certainly uh, from um, uh, people on Twitter, uh, for the most part, <laughs> was how dare you attack this 16-year-old girl? Here she is trying to do something. Here she is engaging, being energetic, getting politically engaged, and you're attacking her. You're treating her as if she was a an adult politician. That's absolutely disgraceful. How can you do that when you claim to be interested in children's education? That was a sort of general gist of it. I think to which the response is, well, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't put someone up. You can't endorse uh, someone as a spokesman for a generation and claim that in virtue of their youth, they should be listened to. They have a kind of purity and innocence and ability to see through bullshit in virtue of being only 16. You can't claim that they have this special authority in virtue of being 16 and should therefore be listened to, but also claim in the next breath that therefore they can't be challenged. And if they say something that's misleading or false, sorry, you just have to suck it up. But was, and not, also, part of just the the, but was not part of the challenge, and this is why I want to talk to you about it, that you said that she was privileged because well, of her mother and all the we'll, rest We'll of get it. onto that in a second. Yeah. Okay. But just, just, to fit, just to conclude this point, um, many of the people um, berating me for challenging her on the grounds that she's only 16, mm. are also the very same people who think that 16-year-olds should have the vote. Yeah. I mean, you can't claim that 16-year-olds should have the vote, but if they, if they want to actually join in the public conversation, make a contribution to a public debate, and get basic facts wrong, that it's impermissible to correct them, either they're old enough to vote and old enough to participate in these public conversations, in which case they should be robust enough to withstand challenge and be asked to defend things they've said if they're false, or else they're not, in which case they shouldn't be able to vote until they're 18. You can't have it both ways. And on the education point, you know, um, if, if a, if a 16-year-old at uh, the secondary school that I helped set up uh, was uh, making a contribution to a debate at the school in which they got their facts wrong, I would hope that the teachers would correct them. Not correcting 16-year-olds when they get their facts wrong because they're 16 and because you don't want to put them off getting engaged in politics and because they're trying to do something and that should be applauded. That's incredibly patronizing and silly. You know, if they get their facts wrong, it's up to us to, as adults to point out that they've got their facts wrong and that you know, there may well be a very, a very persuasive case to be made that we need to do more to combat climate change. But make that case. Don't pretend that nothing's being done. Um, on the privilege point, so <laughs> I got mobbed earlier this week on Twitter because um, Guido Fawkes, on the Guido Fawkes website, so this is a, a British political 
website, uh, a blog. Um, uh, the, there was a story about how uh, Greta's parents are reasonably well off. So her mother um, was a Eurovision Song Contest uh, contestant um, on behalf of Sweden some years ago and is now, I think, a reasonably successful opera singer. Um, the family have a kind of family-authored book out. I think her father's reasonably successful. And in the headline of this piece on Guido Fawkes, I think there was the word privilege. I think he's changed it now, but originally there was the mm. word privilege. And underneath any article, you know, there are, there are various buttons you can press to circulate the article on social media. I pressed the Twitter button and didn't think anything more of it. <laughs> and, um, and, and then, and then <laughs> foolish, I know, Francis. Um, and, uh, and then um, a couple of hours later, I got a call from um, Paul Staines, the guy who owns the mm. Keto Forks website, um, who's saying, yeah, what did you do? You know, my inbox is filling up with hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been and, you. And this piece is blowing up. And I realize it's because you, 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 um, you, know, you tweeted this piece. And I then looked at my tweet. I literally hadn't even looked at it before I, before I, before I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't bothered to look at how it appeared on Twitter. How it appeared on Twitter was um, something like, you know, um, Greta Thunberg is um, from a privileged background or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And then, and it didn't, it, it wasn't clear. I mean, the way Twitter's designed, yeah. one of the shortcomings of Twitter, it, it's not clear whether you are the author mm. of the tweet or whether you're just retweeting something, or in this case, hitting the tweet button beneath an article, which mm. sometimes, sometimes it's obvious that you're just, you've just hit the tweet button below an article. You're not mm. necessarily endorsing the views of that article. Sometimes it's not obvious. It looks as though you're actually saying what the headline in the article says. And that, this, was a, this was a case of that. Mm. And everyone just immediately, well, not everyone, but lots of people on Twitter, enough to get me trending, I think, mm -hmm. in the UK. I got, I got number two, yeah. um, were saying, how dare, how dare Toby Young of all people criticize Greta for being privileged when he's the son of a lord. Um, yeah, my father was a, a labor life peer. Um, and, you know, you could, I, I, did, I did sort of tweet something. So I wasn't actually endorsing this point of view. I merely effectively retweeted an article on Guido Fawkes. So, of course, you know, that, that, no one sees that. And, and I think um, in retrospect, it was, it was foolish um, not to look at how it was going to appear on Twitter and probably actually foolish to, to try and um, tweet that article because I don't think uh, anyone, let alone a 16-year-old girl, should be criticized because, because of their background. That's a silly point to make. It's an ad hominem attack, and I regret doing that now. Yeah. That's why I wanted to clarify it. Uh, yeah. That's why we wanted to talk to you about it, because when I saw that, I know you're a big critic of the social justice cult, as you call it, or the social justice left, and that is very much the method that they use. Uh, and I thought that was very, that, that, that's why we wanted to ask you about Yeah, it. no, I, I think it was, I think, it, I, I think, I mean, I think, I think, I think that as a, as a 16-year-old, a very articulate and intelligent 16-year-old um, who's made, you know, a big contribution to a debate and has pushed climate change, you know, to the top of the political agenda internationally. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement. But I think, I think as someone in the public arena, even though she's 16, uh, it's perfectly fair to challenge her if she gets her facts wrong. But I don't think it's fair to say of her or of anyone else, you know, that, that we should discount their views because of their background. So I, I regret tweeting that. I, I suppose a counter argument to you saying, you know, that she's got her facts wrong. And OK, what it is is a particularly blunt instrument. But like you said, we're all talking about it now. 
and you know, and this has been bubbling under the surface for a while, and you know, people have been slightly mealy mouthed in it. Oh, you can't really do anything. She comes on the scene, and all of a sudden, it's trending. We're all talking about it. We're all discussing it. Surely, isn't it a beneficial thing? Well, um, it, it's it's good that we're all talking about it, um, uh, and it's a debate that perhaps should be higher up the agenda. But I don't think that excuses the dissemination of what is effectively fake news. I mean, you might as well say, you know, someone, someone could invent um, uh, hate crimes, for instance. I mean, you know, one, of, one of the uh, editors on <laughs> no, Quillette. Well, we know about those. <laughs> yeah. One of the editors on Quillette, Andy No, yeah. um, has, um, has, has um, uh, exposed a number of hate crime hoaxes. He was, he was ahead of the curve with the Jesse Smollett case. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, if you hoax a hate crime, that's going to push hate crimes further up the political agenda. Mm. And maybe, you know, maybe we should be concerned about the increasing prevalence of hate crimes, if indeed they are increasing in prevalence. But I don't think the way, I don't think it's legitimate, I don't think you can excuse uh, 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 manufacturing a hate crime, perpetrating a hoax just because it's important to get hate crimes further up the agenda. And similarly, I don't think the fact that she succeeded you know, in pushing climate change up the agenda does not excuse the dissemination of fake news. It's interesting I, because with Greta Thunberg, I've got to be honest. On the one hand, I do think climate change is man-made and it's happening and we do need to address it. On the other hand, she is annoying. Uh, th- there is something about it. I don't know what it is. I just, I just listened. To, I, I just noticed this whole thing, and maybe it's me just got oh, this young person is doing well, really well I, or yeah, whatever. I, I don't know, I, but she I, is quite annoying. But, yeah, I think, uh, I think um, she certainly has an unusual manner. Um, and um, well, she's autistic, isn't she? she she's on the autistic way. spectrum. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I think at one stage um, she was diagnosed with Asperger's, but that diagnosis has now fallen out of the diagnostic manual of mental disorders, I think. Um, so she's on the spectrum. Um, but the fact that she um, comes off as a little bit odd and um, makes a virtue of the fact that she's on the spectrum and claims that she's able to kind of detect the signal in the noise more easily because she's on the spectrum. Um, I find that all very sympathetic. I, I, mm. I, I can sort of relate to that. Well, yeah. I, well both of us yeah. have very close family members who are autistic. Right. Yeah. Well, I, have a, I have a half-brother who's, yeah. who's, who's autistic. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't say I was on the spectrum, but um, I can be a little bit Asperger's-y. Yeah. And I think that's true of a lot of the people, actually, um, who, who contribute to Quillette. Mm. I mean, one of the characteristics of people on the spectrum um, is that um, uh, they're not very good at social signaling. Mm. And they don't prioritize social signaling. They prioritize truth-telling above social signaling. I think that's true mm. in Greta's case, mm. too. Um, it's because they, they, they kind of uh, get a kind of bee in their bonnet because they become slightly obsessive about telling the truth, which for the most part, I think she is with a couple of exceptions, mm. um, that they can ignore you know, whatever the potential repercussions, even they might be negative for their social life. They might be negative for their careers. And we see that with a lot of Quillette contributors. You know, they <laughs> tell the truth about some aspect of their subject or something they're interested in, a research topic. And as a result, they get mobbed and they lose their careers. Uh, but I think that one of, I think, so one of the common characteristics of many of the people who found themselves at the wrong end of these Twitch fork mobs is that they are, you know, a little bit Asperger's. And one of the difficulties, I think, with the current 
uh, atmosphere within a lot of American universities, increasingly British universities, is that they tolerate various kinds of diversity, but not neurodiversity. And some people, you know, getting the kind of speech code and the etiquette right, particularly when it comes to things like transgender, which is, you know, it's, it's a rapidly, it's a fluid area, I mean, literally, <laughs> but it's quite the etiquette around around transgender issues is quite fluid too. You have to be kind of really on top of it. You have to be really good at picking up on social signals if you're not going to put a foot wrong in that. You know, politicians put feet wrong all the time. Even you know, quite sophisticated, intelligent people in public life get that kind of thing wrong all the time. You know, Amber Rudd used the word coloured uh, on the Today programme and then had to apologise for it. It was almost you know, hounded from public life for using the word coloured. She's not on the spectrum, I don't think. If someone like that can kind of make a mistake, imagine how hard it is for someone who is on the spectrum, but nonetheless is, is high functioning, isn't at, at a kind of university like Harvard or Stanford or Yale, to get everything right, to understand, to be able to pick up, not just on the rules, but on the emerging rules, which haven't been written down yet, to be expected to get all that right, uh, is, you know, it, it's essentially a form of intolerance against people who are on the spectrum. Mm. That is actually a very, very good point, and very because one of the criticisms that uh, that was from people that I know that was leveled against you is that it was sort of portrayed that you were bullying an autistic 16-year-old. Mm. And it was, you know, the classic case of, you know, a privileged white male punching down, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, 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 I don't accept that... Um, uh, challenging some of her claims is a form of bullying and you know oftentimes um, if if you if you robustly challenge something uh, someone from a victim group uh, has said you get accused of bullying um, and that's often that's often um, a reason for no platforming people um, at universities um, uh, I mean I think it was even invoked actually with the recent no platforming of Jordan Peterson by the Cambridge Divinity faculty uh, because he had been photographed standing next to someone wearing a I'm a proud Islamophobe t-shirt uh, it was it was argued by a kind of cabal of social justice academics at Cambridge mm. that some Muslims at Cambridge would feel bullied if he, if he was given a platform by Cambridge University and allowed to lecture on the Bible at Cambridge. Um, so, you know, that, that form of, that form of, uh, that, that kind of tactic is a very familiar one that the social justice left uses to shut down any challenge to their nostrums. So you've, you've referenced how the social justice left is sort of a religion and you've actually used the word apostate. Could you, just go into that a little bit more. What do you mean by that? As in, it's a sort of religion. Um, uh, I mean that, um, uh, well, it takes on many of the characteristics of um, uh, uh, some of the world's great religions. Um, so, for instance, um, there's a very clear um, uh, moral code at the heart of it. I mean, it, it shifts around a bit, but generally speaking, it's a moral community. And um, people are constantly um, having to advertise their uh, morality to prove they're bona fides as members of that community. And they're constantly um, uh, singling out 
people who are, they think, outside that community, uh, members of the out-group in order to consolidate their in-group identity. They identify members of the out-group and, um, and, and expel them, uh, sometimes in quite brutal ways, um, or try and demonize them in quite brutal ways. Um, they, uh, like, like other religions, they have particular dress code. So, you know, it sometimes uh, involves things which we would associate often with pagan religions, like piercings and Body paintings. I see you've got a tattoo, Francis, but obviously it doesn't apply to everyone with tattoos. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, there is clearly there's clearly a costume. Um, uh, there are various there are various. I mean, I think you could say there are various forms of worship. You know, they, 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 there's a kind of when you look at when you look at it was uh, Andrew Sullivan, I think, in New York Magazine. Um, uh, he uh, linked to the YouTube video of a group of protesters protesting against Charles Murray at Middlebury mm. College um, in 2017. Um, and they started, they all got out a bit of paper and they started reciting what felt very much like a kind of religious liturgy. Um, and then they all turned around in a kind of ritualized way to turn their backs on him at the same move. And it really felt like, I think uh, Andrew Sullivan called it a, one of George Orwell's smelly little orthodoxies. Uh, but it felt like a religious cult. And they looked like members of a religious cult who, who, who were kind of... Uh, enthralled to a kind of form of mass hysteria in the mm. same way you would say Scientologists um, or the, the Westboro Baptist Church are kind of, uh, you know, slightly loopy. They seem loopy in the same way, in a sort of religious, in a fervent religious way. Um, I think um, uh, there's another respect in which it's quite religious, which is um, the belief in uh, the kind of, it's, it's the, the evil eye. So, um, you know, in, 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 in the voodoo religion in, yeah. in Haiti, um, uh, uh, there is this belief in the evil eye that you can put a hex on someone. And once yeah. you put that hex on someone, it kind of, it, 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 it sort of renders them unable to act. It means that they're kind of enervated and paralyzed in some way. Similarly, people think that whiteness has that effect on people, that if you don't apologize for your whiteness, just in virtue of being a privileged white person, that can kind of exert this kind of invisible oppressive force which can enervate and emasculate and paralyze non-white people. It almost looks and like you're they, doing an invocation. Sorry, <laughs> but, yeah, but, 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 they often, but often people in the social justice cult invoke these kind of, this idea of invisible forces that we can't see, but which are out there exerting this toxic effect on people, like unconscious bias, you know. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the science kind of behind all this stuff is pretty threadbare. And finally, the respect, I think, in which it's probably most like a religion is that many members of the social justice cult um, uh, uh, set very little store by reason and rationality and logic. They often refer to those things as tools of white privilege, a way for privileged white men to, uh, to, to preserve their, their dominance and their power. Uh, you know, and that, that attack on reason, on the values of the Enlightenment, it, it takes the form of a kind of quasi-religious counter-Enlightenment project. I think the word cult is probably more accurate than religion. I'm certainly not the only person uh, that's come up with this view. I mean, there's a guy called uh, Michael Lindsay, who was one of the people who was um, uh, involved in Sokol Square in which a number of grievance studies journals were hoaxed and made to publish kind of ridiculous articles to show up just how ridiculous um, some of the material being published in these grievance studies manuals. Also, there was one about, um, you know, sexism amongst dogs, rape culture <laughs> yeah. amongst dogs in a car park in Portland or something. Um, but he was one of the people involved in that. And he's produced this really interesting YouTube video in which he sort of looks um, in a very analytical 
way, at whether or not it's appropriate to describe um, the kind of social justice movement as a religious cult, and his conclusion is that it is. And do you know, but do you not think that unconscious bias exists in that we, we just want to be around people who sort of look like us and echo our same views? We, do we not want that as human beings? Unconsciously? We sort of do, don't we, really? Well, I think don't most of us want it consciously. I'm not sure that... Um, <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that... Uh, I'm not sure that... Uh, I mean, the problem with... There's, 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 there's the way in which unconscious bias is um, exposed by um, uh, diversity trainers who lead... Um, you know, unconscious bias training sessions, um, not just in the public sector, but more and more widely in the private sector too. The, one of the most commonly used tools is something called the implicit association test, which was developed at Harvard. Um, and in this test, you sit in a chair like um, Malcolm McDowell in mm. um, A Clockwork Orange, and, uh, and you're shown various images and you have to kind of press kind of uh, favorable, unfavorable, favorable, mm. unfavorable. And the idea is that when you see an image of a black man, um, you're more likely to press unfavorable than favorable. That's not quite as crude as that, but almost as crude as mm. that. And in this way, uh, but because you're doing it so quickly and you're not given an opportunity to think about your responses, it supposedly reveals what you really think unconsciously. Mm. Um, you're not given a chance to process it. You're just instinctively reacting. And in that way, supposedly betraying your unconscious bias. And people take this test and then the you know the the the, the, the tester then says, look, you're mu- you're, you you you've behaved in a racist way in these various respects. You must be unconsciously biased. Hopefully, you'll now be aware of that and be less biased in future. The problem with the implicit association test is uh, well, there are numerous problems with it, but one a couple of the problems are one, there's no consistency. So someone can be you know a raving fascist when they take it on a Sunday afternoon, but an out-and-out progressive liberal when they take it on Monday morning. You know, every time they've eaten. <laughs> <depends> <laughs> on what they've had for breakfast. That's yeah. right, Francis. Um, but, 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 but the fact that it changes each time people take mm. it suggests that it's not revealing anything constant about someone's unconscious. And also, there doesn't seem to be any correlation between how consciously uh, racist people are and how unconsciously racist the test reveals themselves to be. Mm. So someone, you know, a grand wizard in the Ku Klux Klan <laughs> might get a better score than Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, perhaps not a good example. No. He is a bit racist. Shows, but, shows yeah. a picture of a rabbi <laughs> A better score than David Lavin. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, the rabbi, I imagine, he'd like, literally get, get out of the chair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be any correlation between, you know, discriminatory and prejudicial behavior and your score on the IAT. So it's basically, you know, it, 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 there is, it, if it's something invisible that, that they're trying to measure, something that people aren't aware of and not necessarily um, going to kind of publicly disclose, you know, it's, it's very, very hard to measure. And it feels to me like um, uh, an invisible force being invoked by members of the social justice cult to try and, to try and um, justify their claim that society is riddled with systemic racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia, even though all the public surveys that try and measure those things by actually asking people questions like, would you object if a Muslim moved in next door to you? Would you object if a close family member married an African-American and so forth? All those surveys suggest that racism, homophobia, sexism, transphobia are all rapidly declining and have all hugely declined in the last 25 years or so, uh, particularly in the UK, interestingly, but also in the US. 
Um, so w- what do you do with this? If, if you're kind of invested in claiming that, you know, America and Britain are riddled with systemic racism and sexism and homophobia, and you're confronted with this evidence showing that actually it's been massively declining over the past 25 years, you can't just say, oh, well, job done, move on to something else. You say, ah, no, this only measures people's conscious prejudice. There's something else called unconscious <laughs> prejudice, and that remains, that's, that's worse than it ever was, you know. And how do I prove it? By inventing this ridiculous test, which is completely bogus. I, I suppose a counter-argument to that is, for instance, you see something like what happened with Windrush, where you, you have people of Caribbean origin who've been in this country for 50 years or whatever it may be, and all of a sudden they're being told that they have to go back and they have to return, when in, in fact they are and should be British citizens. Yeah. Or the fact that we've seen a racism in football, you know, yeah. the problem. So I, I take on board your point, but it still seems to me we do still have, there is still well, problems it, in this. I don't know, no one would dispute that, yeah. um, that, that there are still pockets of racism, pockets of homophobia. Um, you know, there, there are still some people who are openly misogynistic. Mm. No one would dispute that. Um, I think what's at issue is, is it worse now than it's ever been before? And that seems to be a central tenet yeah. of the kind of social justice case. It's worse than it's ever been. Mm. Um, you know, and unless uh, uh, fascism is about to triumph, we, you know, unless we, unless we man the barricades, comrades, mm. unless we de-platform people like Toby Young, uh, another Hitler is going to come to power. Yeah. Uh, so you know, let, let, let's act. Let's act now. Let's let's get let's get out into the streets, uh, and that's that's the claim that it's getting worse and yeah. it's about to, it's about to kind of go beyond the point of no return. Yeah. Something action has to be taken now, a bit like the climate change case. Um, so, uh, so so no one's disputing that these things still exist and there yeah. is still some work to be done. What I'm disputing is that they've got worse. In yeah. fact, by every um, by every uh, respectable, robust measure, attitudes have improved dramatically and populations have become much more liberal across the Anglosphere. And to claim that, okay, to dismiss that evidence and say, oh, but what about unconscious bias seems to me to be, you know, a way of sidestepping what's really going on and a way of avoiding confronting the fact that actually those things, whilst problematic, are no no longer huge problems. And moving swiftly on, uh, you, uh, you're talking about wokeness and you have the, the, la- the logo of a woke company on your chest, <laughs> uh, which for our listeners is Nike. And uh, Nike, if you're listening, we wouldn't mind being sponsored. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we, we, women shirt. are equal to men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Give us money. I should say now that Francis gave me this shirt. But where do you stand on woke companies and, you know, the Gillette and all the rest of it? Well, um, I'm, needless to say, um, extremely sceptical. So I wrote a cover story for The Spectator a few weeks ago called The Woke Corporation. And it was about the spread of um, what is essentially um, a hard left neo-Marxist ideology, which until about 10 years ago was confined to grievance studies departments in US universities, maybe the fringes of parties like Labour and the Democrats in the US, the Unabomber, probably one of the people who subscribed to this particular ideology. But, but, it, but, it, but it, and, and then it spread um, uh, to uh, other universities. And then it spread from universities into public bureaucracies, political parties. Um, uh, yeah, not surprisingly, kind of 
quite easy to imagine that um, that transition happening. Um, but what, what's, what, what, what is quite unexpected, I think, is that it's now beginning to spread into the private sector. And I think politically that's quite dangerous because um, in the past, the private sector has been a counterweight. Generally, the private sector and um, uh, uh, has been quite conservative with a small c, certainly right of center. Um, and rich folks in the private sector, large corporations have sponsored right of center think tanks, right of center magazines, and so forth, and have provided a counterweight to the kind of liberal progressive ideology of the public sector. Mm. Um, uh, but, but what we're seeing now is that, uh, that, that that liberal progressive ideology is beginning to seep into the private sector. And I think one of the ways in which it's able to do this, one of the reasons that's happened, is because um, uh, under the old socialist kind of uh, dogma, um, capitalist companies were the enemy. The 1% was demonized, even as recently as the Occupy protests, mm. Occupy Wall Street mm. and so forth. There was this demonization of the 1%. If you were an advertising executive or you worked on Wall Street, you worked um, for a large corporation like Procter & Gamble, mm. you were essentially one of the bad guys. You were part of the problem, not part of the solution. Um, and they were worried about socioeconomic inequality, about the wage gap between the highest earning employee in a particular corporation and the lowest earning employee in that particular corporation. And it was that kind of inequality, socioeconomic inequality, that was highlighted and targeted by the left. There's been a sort of weird sea change that's happened over the past 10 years or so, whereby that kind of inequality is now um, not important, or certainly not nearly as important as inequality be between different identity groups. So what matters now is equality between um, uh, is, is, is the inequality between privileged white uh, cis men and other groups like gays, lesbians, transgender folk, and so on and so forth, women, African-Americans, African-Caribbeans. Um, the, the, the mismatch in power and influence and economic wealth between different identity groups has become much more important than the mismatch at an individual level. So it's not socioeconomic inequality, it's now inequality between different identity groups. And that means that the corporations, the the fat cigar-smoking executives who for years were demonized as part of the hated 1% can now embrace the kind of love of the, of the social justice left, of these kind of left-wing firebrands, because they're not attacking them anymore, and they can solve the problem. They're no longer part of the problem if they promote enough women and African-Americans and gays to their boards. Provided they do that, no one gives a fuck anymore about the fact that the cleaner is getting one-hundredth of the wage of the chief executive. That's completely by the by. Provided there are enough women on the board, then that company is woke, and it gets a pass, and they move on to kind of, you know, mobbing and targeting someone else. So I think that the, 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 for years, clearly, being demonized by left-wing firebrands, particularly young people, uh, was a source of huge kind of psychic um, misery, uh, for psychological misery for the kind of members of the 1%. And now the opportunity to kind of get this kind of warm kind of flood of approval from these people. It's almost like, you know, the, the middle-aged man who is used to being kind of attacked by his 16-year-old daughter 
at the breakfast table, is suddenly saying, is suddenly able to say to her, yes, well, it may be that I'm part of a multinational global corporation which employs people in sweatshops in Indonesia to produce T-shirts that are sold on high streets. And, and it may well be that, um, that you know, uh, uh, the cleaners at our company work for below minimum wage because we've worked out a way to avoid minimum wage legislation because we're that clever. But nonetheless, there are three women on our board. There are four gay people on our board. Uh, we've given money to mermaids, at which point the daughter says, that's great, Dad. Great. You know, she, suddenly he gets that approval mm. of his daughter. She's no longer attacking him for being part of the problem. He's now part of the solution. But one of the things that strikes me as so odd, and th there's a lot of truth, I think, in what you've said, is that these adverts are incredibly unpopular, particularly <laughs> often with the people who buy the fucking product. I yeah. mean, look at Gillette. Yeah, there's no need to swear. There is a yeah. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. I think when, when you put the podcast online, I've discovered you're going to have to tick the um, unclean box now. Oh, are we? Uh, yeah. We've yeah. always yeah. been. He's, he's all right. He's Russian. He's yeah. unclean anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> ideologically, if nothing else. Uh, but they're incredibly unpopular yeah. with the people who are buying the product. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for Gillette to make uh, an advert essentially slamming men who shave... Mm. That makes very little sense. And you look at the like to dislike ratio on YouTube on some of these videos. I think Francis yeah. and I would go and make a suicide pact <laughs> if that happened to us. I think, I think, I think, uh, I think there are, I think it's, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, and um, one of the reasons I think, uh, you know, uh, the Brexit party is likely to sweep the board mm. um, at the forthcoming European Parliament elections is because I don't think uh, it, it's as though the silent majority has been just completely shut out of the kind of public conversation. And people imagine that if you, if, even now, if you're kind of, if you're robustly pro-Brexit, that that somehow makes you alt-right or worse, far-right, but nonetheless puts you completely beyond the pale. Lots of people who for perfectly respectable, understandable reasons are pro-Brexit resent you know, being shut out in this way. And I think they're going to they're going to they're going to signal that resentment. They're going to show what they feel about this by voting for Bre the Brexit party in large numbers uh, next month. Um, but um, but you're absolutely right. And I think one of the reasons um, one of the reasons for that is partly because um, uh, the executives of these uh, woke corporations exist in tiny bubbles. You know, they 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 they, they don't. They, they, and, and, and I think they I think they, you know, they they they're just not aware of the extent to which they are completely disconnected from their customers. And often you see the consequence of this, which is that um, uh, it's happened. It's beginning to happen amongst liberal arts colleges in the U.S. So, um, uh, at the University of uh, Mississippi. Um, which was uh, where there was the first outbreak of kind of social justice rage on campus. There were various kind of um, hate crimes and um, there were massive protests and they went on for days. And of course, the university administration completely capitulated to the mob. And as a result, uh, enrollment at that particular university has fallen off a cliff. You see the same thing at Middlebury um, since the uh, flare up over Charles Murray's speech and you know, the cultists uh, uh, appearing in that YouTube video. Enrollment at Middlebury has fallen and some liberal arts colleges, some of the smaller liberal arts colleges in the US are actually going bust, which uh, has given rise to the phrase, go woke, go broke. Mm -hmm. Now, it may be a while before um, Procter & Gamble who own Gillette, 
goes broke. But I think we're going to see we're going to see a lot of companies uh, get a nasty shock when they realize just how unpopular this kind of virtue signaling, kind of racial self-flagellation and denigration of masculinity is with their kind of customer bases. Well, you saw that cafe in Australia which charged men 18% more. It went bankrupt. The, the, toxic, the yeah. toxic masculinity tax. Yeah. yeah. Go, go men broke. are the yeah. only ones who can and afford there are, there it. Are, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things is since Quillette started, since I've been involved with Quillette, a number of woke alternatives to Quillette have sprung up. Yeah. Um, some of them um, have a particular kind of anti-misogynistic theme. Um, others are quite kind of Corbynesque in their outlook. And they've all, in, in, in the short, in, in, the, in the last couple of years, I've seen at least half a dozen of these kind of woke alternatives to Quillette spring up and then go broke. Um, whereas Quillette is just going from strength to strength. Look, we always, and this is something that I've always meant to ask you, people bandy around this term alt-right. There's now alt-right adjacent. You know, it was like using the terminology of estate agents. You know, it's adjacent to the to the train station, whatever it is. What is the alt right? I don't even know anymore. I don't even know what it's it's it, it, it's 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 like the word, it's like the term populist. It's just a kind of all purpose term of abuse that liberals use to describe people who hold opinions that they don't approve of. Um, uh, this adjacent thing that's really interesting. So um, I, 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 Quillette is often described as being alt right adjacent. We are apparently. Yeah, we're well, crypto fascist uh, as well, uh, yeah. which is when. You are a fascist, but you don't know it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unconscious fascist. Unconscious fascist. Um, <laughs> when they say the, crypto, the, was, I'm like, great, we're going to get was, sponsorship. So is I, this money? I was, no. So there was, there was. I don't know if you followed this uh, flare-up in Australia recently between. Christina Hoff Summers, who is a kind of uh, libertarian feminist, and Roxane or Roxanne Gay, who is a kind of social justice identitarian feminist. Mm. Um, and Roxanne, if that's how you pronounce her name, described Christina Hoff Summers as being a white supremacist. And when Christina Hoff Summers pushed back, this is on the, before the debate had even taken place, when she pushed back and said, you know, uh, what makes you say that? What have I ever said that could remotely be construed as a defense of white supremacy? She said, oh, well, okay, but you once appeared on a platform with Milo, uh, and he's a white supremacist, so you're white supremacist adjacent. And uh, Milo, I mean, you know, first of all, Milo's just married a black man. So if he's a white supremacist, he's, he's getting his wires crossed somewhere. Um, but, uh, uh, but secondly, you know, it's just ludicrous to think that if you stand next to someone with unpalatable views, you're somehow contaminated by their unpalatable views. And, and why should it just be, if it's a form of infection, if, it's sort of, if, 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 if having unorthodox opinions is viral, like Ebola, you know, then, then presumably if, if I've stood next to Milo, then if I then stand next to you, you get whatever it is that's wrong with Milo as well. That's so why should I'm, it no, just apply no, to... No, 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 I voted well. Remain, so I'm fine. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, exactly I should just say I'm thinking. slightly concerned about this because <laughs> I'm, I'm, due to, I'm due to participate in a debate at the Oxford Union in a couple of weeks about no platforming, about whether it's ever justifiable to no platform someone. And on my side is Katie Hopkins. Oh. So am I going to be Islamophobic adjacent? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah, well, it's interesting you get these six degrees of Nazism that, that they've invented. That basically six ever, degrees. Well, it makes, that's what it is. But that's what it is because if, if I've, if the people that we've interviewed, some of them we disagree with on certain things, right? But if, if we've a sat, a lot of them, yeah. Present company accepted. <laughs> no, but but, but you, you know what I mean. Like, I, and there'll be things we disagree with you about, but we, we just try and have that conversation. But if the, the, the mere fact of being in the same room as someone 
renders you untouchable yeah. because they've I mean, got it, this infection. It's 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 ludicrous. I mean, I think I think it's it, it's it's part of the you know it, it's part of the rationale for no platforming people that if you provide them with a platform, then you're conferring legitimacy. Mm. On, on the points of view that they espouse. So if you disapprove of their points of view, then you oughtn't to give them a platform. And that includes having them as guests on podcasts like this. I mean, it, it, there are so many things wrong with that argument, but I think the, the, the most effective counter-argument is to say, well, if, if, um, if, if Joseph McCarthy hadn't been given a platform by CBS News, uh, if, if he hadn't been publicly challenged over his claims, vastly inflated claims about the penetration of uh, US public life by communist agents, he never would have fallen off his pedestal. It was only because he was given a platform by CBS News and confronted and actually, you know, forced to acknowledge that what he was saying was largely bollocks, that McCarthyism then imploded as a kind of political force in the United States. Just ridiculous. I always remember when Nick Griffin went on question time and he just looked like an absolute buffoon. Uh, if uh, For people who don't know American, uh, Nick Griffin was the leader of the British National Party. And he just looked like an idiot. He was just outclassed and outthought yeah. by every single person he was up against. And it was embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Tommy Robinson, good example. Um, someone who's routinely no platform, someone considered beyond the pale, not someone who is, is regarded as entitled to participate in these kind of public debates. As a result, he's become this kind of cult figure. He's standing as an independent in a forthcoming, in the forthcoming European Parliament elections. If he'd been given a platform, he would have faded out long ago. Yeah. That's an interesting argument. I never thought about it like that because Tommy Robinson, a lot of people want us to interview him and we've not done that and consciously stayed away from that. Um, that's an interesting point. I never thought about it like that. I never thought about it like that. Anyway, this is just me. I should have just done that bit in my head. Um, listen, there's a, there's a bunch of other stuff we wanted to talk about. Uh, Roger Scruton was an interesting yep. thing that's happened recently. Tell us about that and, and your thoughts about that. Yeah, so uh, Roger Scruton, for those of your viewers and listeners who aren't aware, is a 75-year-old uh, conservative philosopher, probably the most uh, well-known and celebrated conservative philosopher currently living. Um, he's, been, he's written over 50 books, um, uh, including several books about conservatism. Um, he, um, uh, uh, he started this magazine called the Salisbury Review um, and edited it for many years. He's been a visiting professor at a number of universities, including, I think, Oxford. Um, and uh, he was appointed to um, a government uh, body. It was a very, it was a minor appointment of an unpaid position. He was made the chair of something called the uh, Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission, which was trying to see how public housing, the appearance of public housing could be improved, how public housing more generally could be improved. And he was, he, he was appointed last November. And as soon as he was appointed, various offense archaeologists started trawling through everything he'd ever said or written, dating back, you know, 30 years to try and find evidence that he wasn't a fit and proper person to serve on this public body. Um, exactly the same as what happened to me yeah. in the beginning of 2018. Um, and, uh, and, and, and BuzzFeed in particular kind of dug up quite a few things. And, and these were all thrown at him and pressure was put on the conservative government back then in November to defenestrate him 
and 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 the pressure was resisted. I thought he was a goner, um, partly because of the way the government had more or less kind of folded um, at the slightest whiff of gunfire when uh, I came under attack. But no, they decided to stand firm in 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 Roger's case, and he survived that onslaught. Um, about a few weeks ago, he agreed to be interviewed by the New Statesman. And um, he gave. He used to be the wine critic of the New Statesman, so he wasn't expecting to be stitched up. He gave them an interview, gave an interview to this guy called George Eaton, who's the deputy editor of the New Statesman. And before the interview was available on the newsstands, I think it may have been available online, George Eaton posted a series of tweets in which he had quote-mined things Roger had said in the course of giving this interview to the New Statesman and made it sound as though he was doubling down on some of these supposedly offensive things that had been dug up by the offence archaeologists in November and also adding to them. So I think, the, I think more or less the only new thing he was accused of having said, which was supposedly beyond the pale, was that he'd, he'd said that, the, that he'd, according to George Eaton in this tweet, he'd said that the Chinese uh, increasingly resembled automatons. And that's a kind of well-known racist trope that Chinese people are all the same, that uh, uh, they all look alike, whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and within five hours of this thread being posted by George Eaton, um, a couple of conservative MPs had weighed in saying, this is unacceptable. He doesn't belong in the government. And he was fired from the job by the, uh, well, technically by the Secretary of State, James Brokenshaw, um, who had originally given him the job. But clearly the, 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 the gunfire came from Downing Street. Um, and, uh, and he wasn't given an opportunity to defend himself. Um, no one in the government seemingly asked to see the interview or asked to listen to the tape. Um, they just immediately responded to this furore, which George Eden had successfully whipped up on Twitter with the help of BuzzFeed. And he was fired. He was thrown under a bus. Um, and uh, um, uh, uh, he, he, he immediately countered with, actually, I didn't say that about the Chinese people. I was making a point about the Chinese Communist Party. And actually, all these other things that you have me saying, which make me sound like a frothing at the mouth kind of troglodyte bigot, uh, have been taken out of context. And in some cases, you know, ellipses had been inserted uh, where words have been taken out to try and make the quote kind of seem more inflammatory. And if you'd stuck those words just back in, in the middle of the quote, they would have been less inflammatory, let alone the context. Um, and, uh, and for a long time, uh, me and other people, Douglas Murray, have been trying to exert pressure on the New Statesman to release the audio tape of the interview between George Eaton and Roger Scruton so we can see for ourselves uh, whether he was quote mine, whether these quotes were taken out of context, or whether this actually George Eaton was fairly summarizing what he'd said. And someone anonymous, for, for a long time, the statesman resisted. Mm. Um, and then someone anonymously sent the tape to Roger Scruton, emailed Roger Scruton the audio file, and the audio file completely exonerates him. Shock. Um, <laughs> and uh, Douglas Murray has written the cover story on this week's Spectator, um, uh, uh, defending Roger Scruton and essentially saying, look, he was hung out to dry. He was essentially, it was essentially a hatchet job. He was targeted. I mean, I don't particularly want to... Um, um, uh, pillory George Eaton for this behavior. I mean, maybe he thought he was doing his job. He's reasonably young. 
it was a mistake. I don't think he should, you know, his career should be ended as a result of this. But one of the things which casts him in a particularly bad light is that when Roger Scruton was fired, um, he then posted a picture of himself on Instagram swigging champagne out of a bottle. And the caption was something like, the feeling you get when you get racist, homophobic government advisor Roger Scruton fired. Now, he, was, he, qu- he quickly took that down. Wow. and is now embarrassed about it. Um, but uh, that suggests that he had a kind of uh, an agenda. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sorry episode, but in some ways, you know, it, 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 it's, um, it's, it's been quite helpful for those of us trying to uh, defend the presence of people with conservative views in British public life, um, because it's clear, couldn't be clearer, that Roger Scruton is a victim of a miscarriage of justice and that the government reacted far too quickly to what was effectively the demands of a Twitter mob to fire this person. And now I think uh, very embarrassed about having not kind of waited a bit and, and, and actually asked him for an explanation and perhaps asked the New Statesman to see the recording um, uh, before making a decision about what to do with him. So hopefully, I mean, not too, I don't have too much hope for this, but hopefully it'll make it just that little bit harder um, for the government and other public institutions to fire people uh, at the behest of Twitter mobs without any kind of due process. This is what worries me because uh, if if this is the the length to which the government is prepared to go, where they instantly jump on anything like that and they get and and they fire people for a perception of wrongdoing, then where are we going to be when this white paper that you, we, we mentioned yeah. briefly, uh, where essentially the government is trying to regulate the internet in a very harsh and draconian way, where are we going to be then? Well, you know? the really worrying thing about this um, is that um, the people, you know, the government behaving in this incredibly intolerant, skittish way and doing the bidding of what are effectively a tiny minority of social justice activists on Twitter. Um, uh, If this government, which is a conservative government, is behaving like this, God knows what it'll be like if Jeremy Corbyn ever gets into Downing Street. Um, And one of the worrying, one of the the kind of uh, uh, alarming dimensions of this, as you say, is that the government a few weeks ago published a white paper, which is what the government does before it actually introduces a bill in Parliament. So we know that the contents of the white paper are going to find their way into the bill. A white paper setting out its proposals for regulation of the internet. And the paper was called Online Harms. And uh, uh, it's not clear whether a new regulator is going to be created by this Act of Parliament in due course or whether an existing regulator, probably Ofcom, will just be empowered to regulate the internet. Um, But Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, um, uh, boasted on the day that this white paper was published that Britain was going to have the toughest internet regulations in the world. You're thinking, what, tougher than Saudi Arabia, (laughs) tougher than China, (laughs) tougher than Turkey. I'm not sure that's something a conservative Home Secretary should be boasting about. Um, But if you look in, I I actually read this white paper and drilled down into the detail and wrote about it for The Spectator. Um, And it's absolutely horrifying. Um, So uh, uh, one of the things this um, uh, regulator wants uh, 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 internet companies to do um, is to um, stop cyberbullying, to stop fake news, to stop offensive material appearing uh, on their platforms. This is all. This is all kind of falls under the general heading of harms, Um, and it doesn't in any way define 
what might be considered offensive, what might be considered fake news or cyberbullying. It just says this, this is what we'll expect you to, 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 to um, prohibit on platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And the penalties proposed in this white paper for these social media companies that fail to comply with this new code of practice are unbelievably draconian. So they, they'll be able to, the, the new regulator will be able to fine a company like Facebook 5% of its global annual turnover. Well, it's it about time they blind. paid some tax. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe they should pay tax, but they shouldn't be taxed for, you yeah. know, for allowing me to post something on Facebook. Um, but also, the executives of companies like Facebook and Twitter will be jailed if they allow this harmful material undefined to appear on their platforms. So and I can the most... post something offensive to get Mark Zuckerberg in jail? Yeah, I mean, it sounds it, great it, to me. Well, I'm down. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's not great. I mean, it's not great for a number of reasons. I mean, you can joke about it, but uh, one of the most um, one of the most ominous passages in this white paper was that uh, it will expect uh, social media platforms to prohibit speech which is legal, but which nevertheless may be harmful. So you know, they're not just going to be expected to enforce the law when it comes to what is and isn't prohibited. Uh, and by the way, the law is incredibly draconian, as we've seen with the kind of police um, arresting people like Count Duncan. Mm. Um, uh, so they're not just going to be expected to enforce the law, but to go beyond that mm. and prohibit people saying things which are perfectly legal on the grounds that they, and it even says that may cause direct or indirect harm. I mean, look at the weasel words, may cause, yeah. Yeah. direct or indirect. So something could be prohibited. A, a, fi- a company like Facebook could be fined if it allows something to be published, which may not necessarily will, they have to actually show that it has caused any harm, just may cause indirect harm. I mean, it's so woolly, so incredibly subjective and capacious. Uh, what, are, what are Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, what are they going to do? What are YouTube going to do in response to this? They're going imma- to be incredibly cautious. They're not going to risk you know, being fined for 5% of their worldwide turnover or their executives being jailed. They're just going to ban anything remotely controversial. You guys will be banned from YouTube. You laugh now. <laughs> you won't be allowed on YouTube. I'm the owners of you, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg yeah. won't yeah. allow you on YouTube. Well, can I just say it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege <laughs> to have been doing trigonometry for exactly one year. Yeah. It is now over, and thank you for... Yeah. No, um, we have time for one more question. Right, and the question that we always finish with is, uh, what is the one thing that people aren't talking about but we really should be talking about? Climate change. Um, <laughs> yeah, one, aspect of the, one aspect of the climate change debate which, uh, which uh, is often overlooked is that um, uh, the claim that um, the only way to address the imminent crisis slash catastrophe is to end capitalism, that capitalism itself is responsible for ever-increasing carbon emissions and the degradation of the planet, the extinction of numerous species and so forth, and that if, if, unless you end capitalism, you know, we're all going to die. And that's simply not true. So, you know, I think I pointed out earlier that um, the level of carbon emissions in the UK uh, is now 43% what it was in 1990. But in that same period, the British economy has grown by two thirds. So it's possible for economies to grow. It's possible for capitalism to work its magic and to combat climate change at the same time. And the idea that the only way to do this is to vote for Jeremy Corbyn so he can end capitalism. I mean, people don't, I think, quite realize the benefits that capitalism has brought. I mean, I would recommend reading Jonah Goldberg's uh, The Suicide 
suicide of the West. Um, he talks about capitalism, the invention of capitalism, the industrial revolution as a miracle. You know, people were kind of, we, we were sort of uh, bumping along when it comes to indexes like mortality, infant mortality, levels of extreme poverty for millennia. You know, nothing was really changing for millennia. People were, you know, before capitalism came along, the average person was in pain 50% of the time. You know, the average lifespan was 45, if that. You know, more than half of children born died before they got to the age of one. A vast majority of the world's population lived in extreme poverty and had to walk miles just to get water. In some parts of Africa, they still do. Um, but capitalism has changed all that. Capitalism has radically, um, you know, on a scale unimaginable by anyone born in an earlier era, has transformed human life, made us all comfortable, given us all these incredible opportunities. And even today, it's, it's, it's eliminating extreme poverty at an extraordinary rate. So in 2013 alone, in one year, over 100 million people were lifted out of extreme poverty by capitalism, by the operation of the free market. The idea that we should throw that away and return to the dark ages and once again become these kind of grubbing creatures <laughs> sniffing around in the mud, clutching our ribs because we're in fucking pain 50% of the time. It's just ludicrous. But no one really addresses this. And that's why you should wear <laughs> night trainers and use gym raises <laughs> so you get the best of both worlds, guys. You get to use capitalism plus feel smug at the same time. Time. I would just like to confirm that racism is indeed bad. <laughs> and, and on that, I'm anti-racist adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, there you go. You're yeah. cleansing yourself one podcast at a time. Too. Yeah. Well, listen. Thanks very much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. If people want to follow you uh, on Twitter, you're at Toadmeister. People want to mob me on Twitter. Yes. I'm at Toadmeister. Yeah. 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 If the people who want to mob you will find you without <laughs> us. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and uh, always, you know, check out Toby's writing. It's always very interesting. And check out Quillette. Of course, I, as I said, I've written for it. And so it's a great publication. As always, follow us at TriggerPod on all the social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. This is also available as a podcast, as most of you will know. And the final thing is, Francis, tell them about being unsubscribed. Yes, uh, we have had numerous complaints of people saying that have been subscribed. Even people say, I've been unsubscribed, I've, been, I've subscribed again, and they've unsubscribed. Shadow banning. Yes, yeah. exactly. So what we need you to do, if that happens, could you please take a photo of it, send it to us, and then we will tweet Twitter, uh, tweet Twitter, we will tweet YouTube, and they will ignore us, as they always do. But, you know, we've got to do it, and we've got to highlight it, because it's not right and it's not fair. And also as well, if you really enjoy the show and you don't feel you can tweet about it and you don't feel you can share it, please just tell a mate and just tell them why uh, racism is awesome. <laughs> okay, and on that note, keep spreading the hate and we'll see you soon. I have nothing left to add. <laughs> you should be careful. People will take that out of context. Yeah. If you ever stand as an MEP candidate, yeah. you're yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can see you next to Sargon. Just yeah, yeah, exactly. Get all the Venezuelans out. Yeah. That's the one. All right, guys, we'll see yes. you in a week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.